Can I have a glass of water? Who's that handsome? Canvas, art and ideas on FBI Radio. program on FBI Radio 94.5 and I'm your host David Capra and I'm your other host Sabella D'Souza. Um, we'd like to begin our episode today by broadcasting um, by acknowledging the rightful custodians of the land upon which we broadcast the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to our Indigenous listeners their guests along with uh, their elders past present and emerging. The Canvas team would like to acknowledge that this land was never sold traded or given up sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, so what have we got planned for this week? Well, this week we finish our coverage of the National, an exhibition that's happening across Sydney with our neighbour Carriage Works, as curator Daniel Moody Cunningham and artist Shireen Fard uh, joins us in the studio and Shireen is uh, going to be talking about grief. Yeah, I'm actually for some reason, very excited to talk about grief. Yeah, well, I've been reading her article that she wrote uh, earlier this week, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing her talk about her family and some photographs she discovered from the 70s, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then artist Ivy Wan jo- chats with us about a unique lecture series slash performance, Talking Bodies, that's taking place as part of the new festival March Dance at the Surrey Hills Library. We're incredibly happy to also announce that we have a new music curator, um, musician, DJ, and multidisciplinary experimentalist, Makeda. Her work is political, poetic, spacious, and eerily beautiful. Makeda pairs left left of field electronic samples alongside social political criticism. Um, she does a lot of work about colonialism and ties between, obviously, Australian land and the way in which British imperialism has kind of worked as well. So I think it's a really interesting... Um, I guess, field. Um, so get ready for an amazing array of music over the next four weeks, chosen by our wonderful Melbourne-based artists. Exciting. So let's get to our first track selected by them. This is Holly Herndon. Chorus, you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio via our, or via our digital stream. was Holly Hendren's chorus. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 or via our digital stream. Um, David, who do we have in the show? I'm David Capra. (laughs) And, uh, well, for the last two weeks, uh, Canvas has been covering the national, presenting you with artists and curators across all three institutions. Today we're joined in the studio by curator Daniel Moody Cunningham and artist Shireen Fard from Courage Works. Yes. Um, Shireen Fard is an artist, academic and writer working in the field of photography. Fard's extensive exhibition history has seen her work shown in major public institutions in Australia and internationally. In 2008, she was awarded the Asia Link Creative Exchange residency to Varanasi in India. Um, in 2019, she was selected for a residency at the clothing store, both at Carriage Works. Um, Fard, Fard holds a doctorate 
from Monash University and Melbourne, in Melbourne, and is the Director of Photography at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Daniel Moody Cunningham is an old Canvas favourite. He is the Director of Programs at CourageWorks and the CourageWorks Curator of the National 2019 New Australian Art. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, Hello. thanks for being here on Sunday morning. Great to be here. <laughs> Shireen, I wanted to start by saying that you wrote this beautiful article this week that we Thank were you. kindly given um, before the show, so it was a really great insight. Um, could you describe maybe the history leading up to this new photography work that you've created? So um, uh, my grandmother gave me a an envelope full of photographs. Um, she'd kind of covertly gifted me the photographs. They were hidden at the bottom of a box of other family photos, and um, they... They're 24 images of my grandfather's funeral and burial from 1975. And, um, yeah, they're just quite incredible. Like, I was quite moved by them for because of the personal content, but also from a um, photographic perspective. I was really um, struck by the subject matter. I'd never seen photographs like these, the way in which the grief and mourning was being expressed so publicly. And also the fact that um, funeral photographs, are, we, don't, we don't really see them. Um, so that was, yeah, that was the background um, behind the project. Yeah, that's right. We don't normally see them. That's very true. And I know that in I actually have recently discovered some photographs of my own grandfather at Rookwood Cemetery. Amazing. Um, and, I'd love to see them. And they are from the 70s. But yeah. these are colour. Yours are black, black and, white. and white. Do you want to describe them aesthetically? They're, um, they're, they're, they're the most accomplished photographs. And I think that's what struck me when I saw them because as a photographer being a, I was able to read these images um, in a way that you know it kind of I had my personal reaction to the content but then I also had this kind of interest in them as an artist and it was like negotiating these two things and no one could tell me who the photographer is other than that he was a friend of the family's and um they are just, they're shot like film scenes. Mm. So everyone I've shown them to has first thought that they are, one, fiction, second, that they're, they're film, like they're film stills. Or Caravaggio they, paintings. Yeah, there's so much yeah, action going on. There is, and there, there's a painterliness to the postures and the gesture and what's being expressed, something very overtly religious um, I can't like it reminds you of kind of Christian iconography, you know, um, the Virgin Mary holding Jesus or, you know, the descent from the cross or, you know, it has the it reminded me of all those things. It also reminded me of um, Hollywood mafia film sets because <laughs> everyone is dressed in black. Um, and it also reminded me of, you know, what I'd seen in Fellini films. Mm. You know, the other thing is, is Rookwood Cemetery is so desolate in the 70s in this particular patch where my grandfather is, and you don't recognise it instantly as Australia. So, you know, you could be in Italy or in Greece somewhere. You don't know who you're looking at and where you're looking at it. Yeah, I think that the photos kind of portray this monumental kind of feeling. It seems almost... I know when I first looked at them from mm. the brief ones that I've kind of looked at yep. currently, they seem, they do seem cinematic and they do almost seem like staged or something in this mm. like very beautiful way. You mentioned in the article that you believe grief is often left undocumented and displayed in 
especially in private in the West. Mm. Um, why do you think that is? Oh, it's confronting. My God. I mean, you know, if you think at least Australia, you know, we inherit from the from the English and, um, you know, I think the English are famous for that kind of repressed emotion. Um, you know, there's shame in that sort of expression and you need to be stoic and... Um, you know, be in control of your emotions. And, you know, my family being Lebanese, <laughs> we're very much in control of our emotions, which are outwardly expressed. <laughs> and so, you know, when I look at those photos, I think that there's something in inherently cultural as well about that expression. And, um, you know, growing up in Australia, you're very aware that, uh, you know, that there is a difference between the way in which you, um, you know, celebrate certain rituals or um, in cultural rituals. So, the, you know, the funeral photographs probably uh, represent that to that end point. Like, you know, they exaggerate all of those cultural rituals. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean... Oh, there's so much in them, really, that you can read. There's the grief and the mourning stuff. Um, but there's also all this, uh, you know, everything to do with the way in which, um, you know, a Mediterranean culture might deal with death versus... Like, I've just, just come back from India in Varanasi where the bodies, there's the burning ghats and the bodies are cremated and then the ashes are sent down to the river and it was so incredible to watch the way, you know, Hindus celebrate death. Yes, well, Varanasi is the holy city. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's known as, like, the holy city, but also one of the oldest cities um, mm. that has a, a very interesting, um, diverse religion base. Mm. We have, you know, you have the Hindus, you also have the Jainism, um, they're kind of all existing in this yeah. one space, and then all kind of centred around the Ganji River, which flows through it. Um, I remember once I went there with my father and we, my dad was trying to get a tour from um, a guide and the guide was like, I'll show you, you know, burning is learning, cremation is education. Yeah, like, amazing. I'll show you. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and so they're just showing us around the entire time. But yeah. it is a different cultural um, way to express grief and to show it publicly as well. Yeah. Well, in the, uh, you also, um, if you think about the way we deal with like death it's very sanitized it's mm. medicalized like it happens in you know you die in a hospital the body gets taken you don't see anything whereas in india it was in varanasi it was very much every the body is like you engage with the body and when it's when when it's dead yeah and many people get flown back to the varanasi to um for their burial yeah. for their for their um, cremation and released back into the water mm. back into um yeah the ganji and i think that there is a very, there is an act of care in the in the fact that they we wash the body, yeah. we care for the body, we're with the body. You know, we ex, we you know we let it decompose, and that's something mm. that we kind of don't really talk about now when we're looking at funerals. We talk about this idea of you know having a casket that won't let anything in and putting it in this vault inside under mm. the ground, and that's a very interesting way that we've kind of developed how to deal with death. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Daniel, I'm really keen to hear what uh, drew you to Shireen's work. Shireen and I have known each other for about 11 years and worked together on a number of occasions, so we are constantly in touch with each other about what we're working on and what we're doing, and um, 
about a month after starting at Carriage Works, knowing I was going to be curating the National, um, I thought it was time to just check in and see what she was up to. In fact, we were at a pub just down the road from here um, looking at the photos that Shireen's described because she really had this burning desire to show them to me. Um, and um, at that time, Shireen didn't have a great sense of what she was going to do with them as an art project. She had written an essay about them for like a scholarly journal and I'd read that um, and I was really encouraging her to think about, you know, how these could turn into some kind of art project. And you also have a connection to grief as well with, with art making. Do you want to talk about funeral <laughs> songs? Because I was involved <clears throat> in that and that was pretty special. It was quite a personal work. Sure. Um, Funeral Songs was a project from 2007 and then remade in 2012 at Mona. And basically it was hundred uh, started off as 150 funeral songs of friends who are artists and then grew into about like close to 600 funeral songs wow. that I collected and that were displayed on a jukebox in the museum. Um, so it was an opportunity for people to actually put on the public record what their funeral song would be. Um, keeping that in mind, let's go to our next track. This is Bjork, who in fact had a VR show at Carriage Works uh, a few years back. That's right. Yeah, Bjork Digital. Shireen, I'm really interested to hear what your uh, parents uh, or your family think about think about your new work. I mean, I instantly think of you talking about um, like well, grieving in, within the Lebanese tradition, and I instantly think of Marina Boud, who's been making work about her her father that passed away, and involving all her siblings in performance and processions, and um, and the family. I think. Uh, it's really brought them closer together, but it's also quite confronting the angle an artist takes. And how has your family responded to your recent work? So I've worked very closely with my dad on oh, this yeah. project. Um, I mean, in the first instance, it was to show him those photographs and um, and he was aware of them, but he didn't know where they'd ended up. So he was quite pleased that my grandmother had given them to me because I'm kind of informally the family archivist. Um, I think I think my family they they're always they they've been part of my work uh, since like for twenty years. Wow. If I think about my first photographic project, the Operation Nose project. Uh, you know that came from you know, family stories, experience, and then, yeah, subsequently the last work with my brothers and the bearded men. What so did you do with Operation Nose? I, I went to Lebanon <laughs> and I cast um, hundreds of Arabic noses. You're kidding. Because I, I was interested in the way, oh, you know, the Lebanese, they're just, they're such... Um, What's the word? It's like, you know, they're so ahead of their time when it came to plastic surgery. That's what I was going to ask because Marina <laughs> Bood was telling me that everyone is getting yeah, plastic yeah. surgery Oh, in they've Lebanon. been doing this for decades, oh, you wow. know. So, yeah, that was 1999 wow. that I went to Lebanon. Yeah, it exhibited at 4A. Yeah, it exhibited at 4A and 
It was my first real, um, you know, foray into the, well, literally into the art world and um, it was such a great project. But uh, all my family were involved in that. And so I think that when I look at this project, I... that became very aware, like I became very aware of that, that, oh, God, like, you know, it's amazing how family, familial experiences have in a way informed most of my projects over the last 20 years. So, you know, in that sense, my family are quite comfortable with it. But with this, because they're depicted, especially my dad, he is depicted in the in the photographs and he and my grandmother um, are the main characters of these photographs. They're the, you know, they are the, uh, you know, the focus of the photographer. So... Um, their grief is so laid bare as well. Yeah. So it's quite, yeah. it's quite affecting. Yeah. Can you give us an insight into what you've actually done with that those photographs you've discovered? So I, I blew them up very big. So okay. they, they are no longer that little intimate snapshot size. They're... They're blown up to kind of enormous proportions. So you can see minute details in the images, like the hole in my grandmother's stocking on her knee. You know, thing, details like that really started to fascinate me. Um, and then I've inscribed upon each of the images a set of numbers. So I've kind of painted, digitally painted numbers. Uh, so they kind of, they read forensically, almost like crime scene photographs. Mm. And then at the bottom, there's this kind of literary references, so footnotes. And there's two sets of footnotes. So the first set makes reference to, you know, who the people are in the photographs. So grandfather, grandfather's brother, grandfather's sister, um, my grandmother, the new widow. And then the second set of footnotes are kind of more personal, more literary. Uh, you know, they make... Um, they're, they're almost, it's almost like a poem, really. So it was a, the way of dealing with the images was to try and kind of both deal with them from a personal perspective but also from a forensic perspective mm. because you can't work on a project like that unless you are distanced from it mm. somewhat. Mm. Has it brought you closer to your family working with them? Um, I think, look, we're pretty close, all of us, um, but it certainly helped me to understand my father's early life and the grief and the trauma um, that you that he would have experienced and um, and that he quietly experienced mm. you know he's just carried that with him and um, I think having a kind of understanding of that has been really really important for me um, in connecting with him and mm. the photographs give you that understanding that's what's incredible about them and did your father arrive in Sydney alone or with family? No, he came when he was three years of age. Oh, yeah. So my grandfather came um, early 50s on his own with his brothers. They right. were uh, skilled migrants invited here. And then my grandmother and my dad came three years later. So they've been here for a very, very long time. Amazing. I look forward to seeing these Thank pictures. Thank you. Sound amazing. Can't wait to share them. And Daniel, can we talk a little bit about public programs? There's lots going on on a particular sure. Saturday. So the National Open's on Friday to the public, um, and then on the weekend there's a, an extensive public program um, starting Carriageworks at 10 o'clock with performance um, by... Um, Sandra Selig, who's one of the artists that Isabel Parker-Phillip curated into the Art Gallery of New South Wales um, exhibition. But she'll be doing a performance at Carriageworks, um, followed by a performance by Melanie Jane Wolfe, um, who's one of the artists at Carriageworks, followed by a floor talk that I'll lead throughout the gallery um, with a 
and then culminating with a big spectacular performance by Luke Roberts at 12 o'clock, which is um, a kind of 40th anniversary of Luke's most famous um, performance character, Pope Alice. Mm. And so um, then from three, there'll be more public programs at the MCA. And then the next day um, on the Sunday, there'll be um, a curatorial um, like panel discussion at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Right. I think I got the order right, <laughs> as well as some other performances. I'm and, looking and, forward and to things. Pope Alice coming back. Um, yeah. Can you describe <clears throat> Pope Alice to those that aren't aware? Of Pope? Pope Alice um, is a take on on you know the kind of the visual language of the Pope, you know, and mm. all of the kind of um, theatre of Catholicism that, um, that that we understand from having you know witnessed um, various popes throughout the ages. Um, so so Luke Luke Roberts's um, fascination with Catholicism comes from I guess a lot of personal experience of having grown up um you know in that faith mm. but also then interrogating it from a kind of you know from the perspective of being um also queer and and looking at it from the perspective of living in brisbane you know who grew up mm. in the um Yoki Peterson era, so there's a lot of repression and a lot of like political um, conservatism that he's had to rail against. So in some ways, Pope Alice was quite a kind of um, provocative figure when when she emerged, when her divine holiness emerged. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, still to this day, Luke has been, um, you know, kind of persisting and persevering with this incredible character. And so I actually had the great fortune of meeting Luke in 1995 when the Perspector this um at, at the Archive of New South Wales, which was like its national of the day. I see. Um was um he was curated into that by Judy Anir and I was like a young university volunteer wow. who worked That's with amazing. a couple of the artists and Luke was one of them. So I've actually known Luke since nineteen ninety five when I was just a Incredible. young whippersnapper trying to break out into the art world. <laughs> and so it's been great to kind of follow his career and, and I've worked with him mm. a few times over the years. Brilliant. And I also know that uh, Mark Shorter is doing something quite grand. Yeah. He sent me a little photograph (laughs) on my, uh, recently of a huge painted... That's right. I don't know if we can say, but we'll leave it. It's a surprise. It's, it's a pretty surprise. special. It's, it's grand. It's grand. Yes. Well, thank you so much to uh, for joining us. That was curator Daniel Moody Cunningham and artist Shireen Fard from Courage Works talking about the National, which opens on the 29th of March and runs until the 21st of June. Canvas has covered in the lead up to the National many, many artists and, uh, well, uh, around 12 or so, not that many. You can listen back to these interviews along with interviews from artists and curators from the Museum of Contemporary Art and the Art Gallery of New South Wales via fbiradio.com or... Wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Up next, we chat with Ivy Wan about March Dance and an experimental lecture series. But before that, let's go to a track by Felicita, Heads Will Roll. This is Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. Beautiful ambient track from the 2016 titled Heads Will Roll from London-based DJ and producer Felicita. I'm David Capra and you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio or wherever you get your podcast. We're joined right now by artist Ivy Wan. Thanks for coming in on the show this morning on a Sunday. 
Ivy is a dancer and choreographer working between Sydney and Melbourne. Her work is politically and poetically invested in the micro... Microbole and economic. <laughs> That's a word. <laughs> I'm bad at things. Um, in human and more than human reproduction, making relational choreography and dance for the human scale. Sorry. No. <laughs> it's great. Can you just. What is the microbole? Microbial. Microbial. I'm oh, sorry. I pronounced that wrong. <laughs> it's, it's the issue. The joker is me. We've got like making choreography from observation of microbial interaction. Um, you also mentioned, as yeah. part of that, I guess, when you're talking about human scale and microbial scale, you're also a collector of ants, which is a bit of information you gave to me before. <laughs> yeah, and that, wow. like, what's something yeah. interesting. I just, like, was given some ants as a gift, <laughs> a colon- like, a- to begin growing a colony, and I've become quite um, in love. You still anyway, have them. I kind of have a bit of an affinity with ants. I kind of feel like I look like one. Oh, um, you feel like you look like an ant. Yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but I have this colony of ants that are growing. Um, there's a queen and a bunch of workers. And, um, yeah, they're super interesting to watch. Are there any links between the kind of movement of the ants and the movement in your own work? No, because <laughs> I don't tend to sort of... Um, Examine them that way? <laughs> yeah, no, and... I mean, I don't know, ants are so small. I just like the way that they organise themselves, as, like, socially. This, yeah, yeah, that social interaction and they're all kind of... Yeah, and the queen goal. is the queen and then the workers just, like, do the work and, bring, like, they kind of bring the food in and the pupae chew the food and then the ants um, just, like, can just have liquid. Mm. Um, so they just, like, suck on food or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so you're involved in March Dance, which is something that's sort of brand new, really, isn't it? It's just yeah, the first this, year. Yeah, this year's the first year. And you're involved in Talking Bodies, which is like an, a lecture, but how is it different? What are you going to be doing? Um, yeah, so um, the Talking Bodies program is something that I was um, contacted to join in by... Um, my friend Rhiannon and another woman, Katie Green Loherty. Um, and they're looking to, I think they invited me because I have a kind of research practice already. And um, I guess with dance, because it's such an abstract form, mm. oftentimes you can watch and um, not quite know what's going on. It can be quite hard to read. And there, um, is often a lot of research that goes in that um, a lot of people don't have access to. So I have the mm. feeling it's a little bit of a way to sort of open up um, the possibility to get some information to the ideas that people are working with mm. and how they're constructing choreography. Um, yeah, and so um, we each have a residency at the Surrey Hills Library um, supported by the City of Sydney. And, um, and then at the end of that, we each do a... Uh, they're calling it a performance lecture, and so that can really be whatever you want, mm. really. You can kind of, I mean, within the constraints of the space. <laughs> I saw a photograph of Julianne Long. I didn't attend, but I saw some photographs of her looking like she had a little white goatee on her chin and a uh, a graying wig. Oh, <laughs> she amazing. so sweet. <laughs> Julianne amazing. does the best stuff. But what do you think you'll be doing? Have you been thinking about it? What um, research are you... Well, what are you researching? Uh, so I will continue with some research that I started um, in January. So I was a part of this um, thing at the 
powerhouse museum, the Museum of Arts and Applied Arts and Sciences. Um, it was called um, uh, Hacking the Anthropocene or something like that, okay. um, this like laboratory where we came and um, we each were working with a um, collaborator from outside of um, the arts. And so I worked with a political economist because that tends to be the area of research that I engage in. Um, and so they and I worked together looking at this notion that I was proposing of dead labor um, or like labor as a living as a living dead um, uh, which yeah maybe is a little too complex for right now but you could come to my <laughs> my my le- lecture performance performance lecture but um so yeah I'll continue with that research and it's um, yeah, looking at con- labor labor conditions and at debt and at money in contemporary capitalism, mm-hmm. and trying to think about how how dance can be a sort of answer to the kind of um, emptiness of re- of a reduction of a body to um, to a price on a labor market. Do you think that your interest <laughs> in debt might have something to do with you know your formal study at UCID, which is the uh, degree in political economy, was it? Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and how, how's your hex debt going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually pretty small because I haven't had a degree. I didn't do an yeah. arts degree or anything like that. So I d- I've just got this one that yeah. I'm growing. That's um, a little nest egg. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I hate about that is they never actually update you each year how it's grown. So no, they mine don't. O- doubled or more than doubled. Um, over the course of 10 years, and I was horrified. Yeah. It's so sneaky. It's sneaky, but yeah. I mean, it, it's not... That kind of debt uh, is kind of interesting, but I'm a little bit more interested in these kind of um, financial innovations that mm. are that are prevalent now, like securitization and things, and the way that that... Um, may, I was working a lot with this book by Lisa Adkins. She's the, actually the head of school um, in the social sciences at UCID, and... Um, she talks about how um, these financial innovations make time more active so that chronological time is not... The way that she puts it is that there's like a constant revision between past, present and future and that um, financial instruments allow us to sort of um, rewrite our history to foreclose futures or to sort of um, open up futures and that and and it's not necessarily a good thing, but she just talks about this, like, increased activity of time. Mm. Um, and I guess that's yeah. kind of a product of, for lack of a better word, talking about capitalism and productivity and the value of productivity that's placed on time. So yeah. time is more measured, is, it seems or feels, at least to the everyday person, it feels more measured by the product or how much you're able to produce or how much value you get from that time that you spend doing a thing like what do you get out of it which i think when you're talking about dead labor it, it impacts you and it take it stays with you i guess yeah yeah it's kind of like i don't know that we're all like you know that we're especially when you talk about debt so like say i take out a mortgage and i'm locked into being like essentially like the living dead for 40 years mm. <laughs> or you know because mortgages now aren't made so that you can like they're not necessarily structured so that you repay them but just so that you service them so you're just living dead for the rest of yeah. your life and then <laughs> i mean i'm not no i'm not i'm not i'm just i'm not serious i'm just it's like a kind of provocation and a kind and a kind of um, speculation gener- yeah and it's a generative um term 
just to think about, well, what is that? And then where can dance come to bring magic back into the body? So mm. if we're kind of in this state of laboring and, and if that requires a kind of emptying of your soul, then um, how can dance be something which makes magic again possible? And how did dance come into it? So you were doing political economy, but were you also dancing on the side? or? Oh, I've, al- I've always been... You um, have. ...worked with dance. Right. And, si- you know, went to dance as a kid and whatever else yeah and then i've worked as a dance you know i didn't go to university but i've been working as a dancer for a long time and i work extensively as a performer for others and then i was doing reading for my own interest and then i thought oh i would like to study something and then i just ended up in that department because it seemed right and did you always have an intention to kind of i guess work through what you were studying through dance and your body or is it just something that happened um it kind of happened because i was interested in how society is choreographic like how the movements of social bodies or social groups are choreographic already and politics is choreographic and exchange is choreographic and I don't know then there you are (laughs) (laughs) on that note let's quickly go to our next track Black Bearer from Happer you're listening to artist Ivy One discuss their upcoming performance lecture Talking Bodies this is Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 Sure does. It's <laughs> all choreographed. Yeah, this Nothing's is a highly, an accident. highly produ- high production <laughs> show. Right now, we're in studio with Ivy Warren, <laughs> chatting with, um, chatting about dance, dance, and movement as part of March Dance and talking and the Talking Bodies lecture series. Um, Ivy, besides Talking Bodies, you just did a performance yesterday with Rhiannon Newtown, Emma Harrison, and Brianna Kell. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, so it was, um, it's a new initiative by Dirty Feet, so they're an independent um, dance organisation in Sydney and they really support emerging artists um, and each of us had done some of their um, programs in the past and um, so we were invited each to show a work in progress of a solo and so I was working, just giving a bit of a um, of a kind of 
uh, let's say I ended up I the projectors weren't working I wanted to show some video and then I ended up describing what I would do if the projector was working and actually I think it worked kind of better <laughs> probably you know just me being like oh uh so this would have happened and this and then it's like that and then I tried to remember the dance that I would have showed but I didn't know it because I just sort of done it um in situ in Zurich last year and so yeah so um it was um yeah, each of us did a different little, like, up to 20 minutes of just... Um, again, it was something where you can sort of give the... Um, well, at least in my case, because I spent most of the time talking about ideas, and then I tried to produce a structure that kind of um, uh, was somehow drawn from the way that securities are sort of divided up. So I told what I was doing, then I started again and told what I was doing in a shorter amount of time, then I told what I was doing in a shorter amount of time again. So this kind of repetition of parts um, truncated. And so you've worked a lot with, um, well, fellow dancers. You've worked on Scum Ballet, ballet with Angela Goh. Yeah. And so what is it, how has that kind of fed into your own practice and developed you as an artist? Um, yeah, I think working with other people, it's a really nice thing about dance actually is that it's so often really collaborative, especially I really like to work in groups and I really like um, being a dancer for other people. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know, it feels really um, good to be able to share your share your skills and share what um, share what you have in, uh, in towards somebody else's ambition or something mm. like that. Um, Would you say that the choreographer is the queen ant? <laughs> <laughs> no. no. I mean, if that was the case, I probably wouldn't enjoy yeah. it very much. Like, I probably wouldn't work with you that person like, so much. You do this ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do work a lot as a dancer, um, yeah, with Angela doing scum ballet, and um, we've worked together a lot in the past as mm. well. And then with Atlanta just recently at Dance Massive Atlanta Eek, and I've worked... I performed her solo in New York last year and I'm working with Amrita this week on her show for the National. So that's Amrita Hippie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be performing her work um, in the National this weekend um, at the opening at Archive New South Wales. <laughs> Can you describe what it's like to, I guess, come under someone else's vision and, and what that looks like? How do you actually, I guess, learn what the other, uh, what the choreographer is actually trying to create is it through dialogue is it really through the body it's is it so through different spending time with them it's so different depending on the person so some um so for some people you work in a really sort of um traditional way where it's like this is my idea i'm working on this and then there's not really much dialogue after that and you really become a body at work and um you know go and try this for a bit and then come back and show me what you've got and we string it together it's it's rare that I actually work like that nowadays, but um, but sometimes you do still work like that. Whereas um, otherwise you kind of spend a lot of time talking about things and it's really, the work is just as much the um, thing that you end up presenting as much as the community that builds around the work um, and the engagement that you have with each other. So that really, yeah, I tend to really like that. That's the nice thing about dance is that it's not just about the object at the end, but that... that um, some magic happens where you c connect with one another and, and you can tell when, when it's been a good process by the way that the, that the, that the, like the energy that transfers off of the performers onto the person watching or whatever, I think, I, I believe. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, in terms of like what that gives to my practice, I mean, you kind of, of course, are like a composite body made up of all of your experiences. And so I'm always drawing on skills that are sort of dilutions and also maybe um, distillations of things that I've taken from my experience of working with others, of being in the world, of reading, of, I don't know, looking Mm. at my ants. (laughs) Well, thank you, Ivy. It's been a pleasure talking about ants and debt and... (laughs) And dance. And dance. And dance. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. That was artist Ivy Warren talking about March Dance. And their Talking Body is a lecture that is happening on the 12th of April at 8.30 at Surrey Hills Library. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 or via our digital stream. This next track is Waterhouse... a beautifully textured track from Melbourne-based Waterhouse with her track Empty Gallery, uh, released on Decisions Label three years ago. I'm David Capra, and this is Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. This is part of the show where we let you know what art events we think are worth checking out this week. There's another Talking Bodies by artist Benji Ra on the 28th of March, that's Thursday. Apparently it's sold out, but I think it's worth talking about. Um, with a practice that is as seductive as it is politicised, Benji's shares some insights into the ways in which her work is pushing back against colonial and canonical perspectives while collapsing borders between art, club, community, dance and politics. Definitely worth attending at Surrey Hills Library this Thursday at 8.30pm. We'd like to thank you for listening and a special thanks to our guests, Daniel Woody Cunningham, Shireen Fard and Ivy Warren. You can find links to all the events mentioned today on our website, fbiradio.com, under the tab Programs, and then Canvas. Canvas was brought to you by a team of artists, David Capra, yours truly, and Sabella D'Souza. We're leaving you today with the first single from our new music curator, Makeda, taken from her EP, Life Trap. Um, taken from an EP called Life Trap. This track explores the colonial histories of Australia and the UK. We'll be hearing more from her next week. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.